Hey, Outliers, we're back with Rishi Garg of Mayfield for a quick bonus interview. In this short episode, Rishi shares a few of his secrets to success, including how he uses online-focused work sessions, facilitated by Flow Club, to work through his toughest tasks. Some of his favorite books, including Malcolm X's biography and the Tibetan Book of Living and Dying, and why he recommends everyone starting a new role read The First 90 Days by Michael Watkins, and so much more. Let's dive in with Rishi now. Rishi, thank you and welcome back. I'm super excited to do the second part of this interview with you. And I, you. (laughs) So I want to start by kind of trying to connect the dots. And the question that I want to ask is, you know, Mayfield is super explicit, as we talked about in this last interview. You know, if you go to the website, literally the logo is locked up with the mantra, people first. So I wanted to ask you, you know, how does that show up in the way that you work together with other people at the firm and the way you work together with founders? That's a great question. It's something we really believe in. It's all kind of of a piece, I would say. This focus on people is sort of an integrated strategy. So how does it manifest itself? Well, one, we have this trite saying right here that people make products, products don't make people. So if you're going to invest in something, you should invest in the people making the products and spend a lot of time with them and really get to know them because that's how you're going to build a company where the product over time exceeds expectations and you know makes a dent in the world. We're also early stage investors. So we're generally not investing in products. We are generally pre-product or inception stage investors, which means that all we really have to go on is the people, right? And how they show up in the integrity and the quality of the relationship we build with them. That's also, as I think I mentioned on the podcast earlier, kind of the main way we add value. How do we create alpha? We have such a trust-based relationship with the entrepreneur that in those critical moments, we can work together in a way that helps to build the company and influence the entrepreneur successfully and, and have them influence us. So when it works together, it really is a, a dance and a, and a symphony. It works wonderfully. You know, and it shows up in kind of some of our beliefs on our website. You'll see one of them is we're loyal to a fault, which a lot of people probably won't say very explicitly, but like we just sort of acknowledge it. That's sort of the way we do business. We really believe in the founder. We try to back founders. We want to be in business with for a very, very long time. And when you know the founder's not running the business, it's almost always in close collaboration with the original founder. So that's sort of just how we do the work. I'll say the second thing is, one other just sort of everyday way is like, we really believe in the face-to-face. Like our job in a lot of ways in behalf of our LPs is decision-making. It's relationship building and then decision-making. And that is so much better when you're in person with each other as a group when you can really access the full collective knowledge of you know an investment team of seven or eight people so that's just been massive for us. And we feel the same way about entrepreneurs. You know, we did, we had a, as active a deal pace as you can imagine, as we've ever had actually in the course of COVID. But I think we did 100% of our deals. We met the founder in person. So, you know, it was a longstanding relationship, et cetera, which doesn't mean you can't do great work only over Zoom. We just, you know, by hook or crook, if we can actually have that face-to-face, we think it's the, the amount of information you get, the exchange of the biological connection that you can create is just something special. So that's our business. The thing I was going to add to that is, I mean, I think that's especially true. You think about all the companies that have, you know, switched to some form of fully remote or partially remote or mostly remote, and they all still really rely on getting together quarterly or getting together with some cadence because everyone recognizes that personal connections are still really important. So it's kind of funny. (laughs) Totally. I mean, you know, it's easy to discount all the stuff that we do to get to know each other at a company. But in the end, and more than ever before, people are bringing their whole selves to work. And we're human beings. And anything that creates shared humanity, I think it's not only valuable, it makes work better. It's also a real strategic advantage. You know, we talked about this before we got on the podcast, but I, I think there's going to be what I call sort of a great defection in 2022, where ambitious people 
want to be in person because you know they're going to spend time with their bosses and their peers. The ones who spend more face time are going to have better, deeper connections. Other people are going to realize that who are on the hybrid train and they're going to want to be closely connected to those bosses, mentors, and, and peers in the company as well. And so for any company over 100 people that's on a growth trajectory or very established, I think you're going to see a sucking sound of ambitious leaders returning to the Silicon Valley because there is really nothing like face-to-face -face interactions for creating the kind of content and relationships that create great work. One thing that I'm always fascinated by is how we all show up as our best selves each day. And, you know, behind that typically is a lot of intentionality around, you know, habits, routines, the things you do each day. I'm curious, what does that look like for you? It's a good question. My habits and routines have changed a little bit since I've had young children. But there's a few things that I do that I just like that may be of interest. Essentially three things. I journal pretty consistently. So I use the written word as a centering mechanism for myself. And I do different things with this gratitude, refocusing on what's important. In my job in particular, it's easy to get really scattered. I think a lot of people have that problem. So I ask myself questions like, if there's only one thing I did today, what would it be? Just to make sure I'm focusing on the one thing that really matters. And I usually try to write down two or three things by the end of the day that I want to get done. And only two or three things, just so I'm making sure I'm focusing on the big rocks, if you will. And is that like in the morning or throughout the day you're journaling? It's usually first thing in the morning and throughout the day if I can, although if I need to, but I usually don't have time. But yeah, usually, in the, usually in the morning or whenever whenever I feel scattered, that's an important thing. I use a, a bunch of the other techniques that are, you know, everyone does, meditation, et cetera. I find that getting into my body is super important. There's a bunch of techniques that I learned when I've done performance work as an actor through high school and college, all of which are really about how do you get into your body and out of your head so you can be present in the moment whether you're doing improv or you're performing in a musical experience, whatever it is. And so I do things like spinal rolls. I do arm rolls. I will even just do a quick jog sometimes to kind of get out of my head into my body. I do some energy gathering movements before a meeting or before I'm about to work on something important or doing a podcast like this, although I didn't do it today, where I try to just refocus my energy pull energy out of the ground, visualize having energy being focused into me. And it's incredibly rejuvenating. It's sort of based on some Tai Chi work that I've done. And especially when I'm sleep deprived because my kids aren't sleeping, I find that it's a great way to counteract the effects of sleep loss. So those are some of the things that really matter to me. In the course of all this stuff, I'm really grateful, really grateful for having learned that in my theater work. Yeah, I've never heard of getting out of your head and into your body, but it's fascinating. I want to know. I want to know more. <laughs> yeah, it's so crucial. Every time I, I feel blocked, almost always throwing the weights around or, or going for a run or something, just kind of, it clears up everything. It's really great. I mean, a lot of people use that. I, the only thing is they don't get to exercise as much as I would love to. So I tend to use it strategically. Sometimes in the middle of the day, you just got to get outside and, and go clear your head. Yeah. You know, so. Mm -hmm. You know, another thing that we always ask about, where I was curious about is favorite software, favorite tools. And, you know, really the idea is all of us have things we use every single day that, you know, ideally over time, we kind of cobble together the stuff that just is really effective for us. And sometimes that can be a to-do list app. Sometimes it can be an app for note-taking. Sometimes it can be just physical tools like a timer that sits on your desk. So I'm curious, anything in that vein? Good question. Maybe it's my old, you know, being old speech and debate person, but I still use legal pads, which I know is crazy, but I find that the visual space and the blank sheet of paper are just much more spatially valuable for me to be able to see my whole set of things I need to do and, and to clear my mind to get things on paper. So I still use paper and pencil. And that's for like daily to-do lists, all of that? Yeah. Even for to-do lists, a lot of times I'll find that I'm, I feel a lot more, I'm just able if I'm just 
free writing to kind of get everything down and feel really focused about it, organize it better in my head. Although I use, you know, to do apps and stuff like that, but nothing, nothing special. I would say that probably everyone you have on doesn't use. I do use a couple of applications that I think may be a little bit unusual, which are around how do you increase your ability to be centered. So there's one application and a company I'm a really big fan of. It's called Flow Club. I'm a small investor personally. And this company basically sort of enables hosted uh, video sessions for groups of up to eight or 10 people to hold space for each other while they attempt deep work in the course of an hour. And you can extend it, you can do 30 minutes, you can do two hours, you can do whatever you want. I'm a facilitator and one of the hosts of Flow Club. And you basically start the meeting by talking about what you want to get done in the next hour. And then everyone keeps their selves muted and keeps their video on. And you work usually to music provided by the host for about an hour. And then with five minutes left, we kind of come out of our deep work trance and we talk a little bit about how we've accomplished stuff. And it just kind of keeps you, when you know you've been accountable to a group, to get something done, it keeps you focused. Having the music keeps you focused. That intention setting keeps you focused. And I found that to be a really nice tool. I like using that a lot. It's a, it's a very early stage startup, but cool group of guys. And the other one is called Centered App, which is an app I really like. Started by a guy named Ulf. And the app basically shuts down all your notifications and stuff like that, gives you some music, and then you use the Pomodoro timer of whatever timing you want to kind of get a list of tasks done. And little little tools like that I found are really great just to kind of like make sure, again, the most important stuff gets done, which usually requires focus and attention and time. Or if you have to write it down and think this is the most important thing, usually it's something you don't want to do necessarily or something that feels hairy. So it helps me also eat the frog because it's so great to see it crossed off the list, you know, when you're done. So those are just a couple of the types of apps. But I really believe in this idea of the future of human productivity is about depth, not breadth. The future of human productivity is not about the hyperactive hive mind. It's about people doing the few things that really matter that week. It's about accessing creativity. And it's about helping each other do that. I think it's a really great use of people and marketplaces to like bring people together to help us be more productive and feel more satisfied with our work lives. Mm-hmm. On Flow Club, I've looked at it, I've never used it. And hearing you talk about it now, I'm like, oh man, that sounds actually great. And I need to give that a try. I'm curious, and this may be, a, this is a shot in the dark, but you've, as a facilitator of those, I mean, do you have any interesting, remarkable stories? Like, do people have breakthroughs in those moments? You know, I don't know, just anything interesting to share? You know, the, mo- the most interesting thing, nothing breakthrough-wise, I'll tell you, like, I see the same people over and over again. So it's totally addicting. Because we spend so much of our time, most of our time, especially in our industry, working. And so if someone can say to you, hey, listen, we're going to work together and you're going to get a bunch of important stuff done. It's like catnip. It's the same thing that, you know, I used to like going to a a spin class first thing in the morning. Why? Well, because you're groggy and tired. And I want to outsource my brain to the instructor so that their voice is all I'm listening to and it takes all the head out of it. Right. That's why we hire instructors for stuff like that. So it's the same kind of idea. You know, you have work to do, but it's like it's someone else's job to make sure you show up and go. And people use it for all kinds of things. Deep work, everything from deep work to inbox zero to writing a screenplay. And I think the future of this company and why I'm bullish about it is that you can imagine a world where people go on missions throughout the week, you know, and, and you have focused flow clubs for certain kinds of, of projects 
you want to get your blog post written at the end of the week or get your screenplay done or, you know, debug this important piece of code, whatever it is. So, yeah, I think they're going to be see, going to see some really new and interesting and exciting ways of working. A good book to read is uh, Cal Newport's most recent book. I forget the name of it right now, but it's about the hyperactive hive mind and the future of work. And he makes some really great points in that book about how emails kind of killed us productivity wise. I'll look that up and link to it in the show notes. And I'm definitely going to give Flow Club a try. So thanks for sharing. Another thing that I'm always curious about is just books and or figures that have had a profound impact on you. And, you know, I think there's a couple different ways we can, you can look at that question. I think one is it could be personally, it could be professionally that these books have had a big impact on you. And I think it could be something that's just near and dear to your heart, or it could be something that you, you know, I know anyone that's an investor, anyone that's a founder, you typically have these books that you recommend very frequently <laughs> to, to people that are going through the same struggles. So curious for any books or figures that have had an impact on you. That's a really good question. What's a couple things that I recommend a lot? Well, one is sort of out there, maybe a little bit, but it's one that had a profound impact on me, I'll say is the autobiography of Malcolm X which I read when I was in college. And the reason I find this so, it it was so impactful is that one, watching this man come from nothing to become something, I think really showcases the potential of humanity in a lot of ways and the leadership inside all of us. But also it really helped me confront my own relationship with color and race and my own sort of approach to that as a brown person in America. So that's one book that was really influential to me. There's another book that I really like called The Tibetan Book of Living and Dying by Sogyal Rinpoche, which is just a wonderful, it was written, I think, in the early 90s. I kind of tried meditating for the first time because of that book. And it's just a really beautifully written account of the role of meditation and and death, which is such an important teacher. So I, I find that to be really great. Another book I recommend, this is sort of a funny one, but I have a lot of friends who are starting jobs and they ask, what's the best way to onboard? And a lot of people don't have a structured approach to onboarding. So I recommend the first 90 days, which is sort of this HBS kind of book about how to get up to speed effectively in companies. But I find people don't read as much as they probably should or have a structured approach that that's been pretty successful and effective. And then the last book I'll mention is sort of a perennial favorite, which I heard from my partner, Tim Chang, who recommends a lot of great books to me. It's called The Untethered Soul by Michael Singer. And it's sort of a funny book, but he has a lot of really great metaphors in there that are about achieving spiritual health. So I enjoy that one too. These are amazing. There's so many off the beaten path ones. I'm so excited to go get these. Okay, now on to the last two closing questions we ask everyone. So first one is for a favorite failure. Yes, a favorite failure. So I'm going to give you kind of a little bit of a rom-com answer, and then I'm going to give you like a more interesting answer. The rom-com answer is I started a company called Fansnap back in 2007. And by 2010, it was kind of like doing okay, but not great. And I signed a big deal with Microsoft. And, and then I took a little bit of time back from the company. I was kind of going halftime. The reason it's a rom-com example is because I ended up moving back to the East Coast and I started dating my wife there, the woman who now became my wife, which I would not have done. We'd met in San Francisco. She had moved to the East Coast and it wouldn't have happened except for the failure of fan snap to sort of achieve breakout velocity. So that's one of my favorite failures. Yeah, but the other failure that I think about a lot that I'm always working on is as I've gone through my career and I've had, whether it's things that worked out really well or things that worked out just okay, I never think about the failure of the what. I always think about the failure of the how. Like, how did I show up in these contexts? Was fear a really important emotion during these experiences or did I feel light? Was I courageous and open-hearted or did I feel closed? And my failures in how I did my work, when I've been closed and less courageous, and I'm like, those are the ones I've thought about. And that's what I really try to learn from. 
So those are the failures I'm really thankful for because as I look back now, those that's what actually matters. So in reflecting on sort of those kinds of failures, that's where I got inspired to try to approach my work now as open-heartedly and courageously as I can. It's fascinating. I love the, yeah, thinking really deeply about the how you showed up and, and how it felt and how you were in those moments as opposed to the what. You know, and I'm curious, like those things you mentioned, like, you know, like fear, fearlessness is a good one. It's not that you necessarily want to take that all the way to 100 <laughs> or all the way. You don't want to crank that dial all the way up, but you, you know, you might want to kind of fine tune it. I'm curious, is that how that process has gone for you is just kind of reflecting and thinking about how you'll show up differently in the next iteration and it's more about maybe moving a couple clicks as opposed to the end <laughs> turning the dial yeah away. i think that's right there's a couple different strategies i think i've come up with one is just a lot of the work on the habits that we talked about earlier the centering reading meditating it's about like helping myself get perspective so that i can remember that that fear which sometimes can feel really intense is just a it's just an emotion and it's sort of an illusion so first is just doing the work to make and reminding myself to do the work to be able to do that. The second thing is I try to figure out where in my life there are structural things that make it easier to succumb to some of that stuff. But I try to remove those. You know what I mean? So I'm trying to think of a good example now. You know, I'll give you some advice that I always remember that is related to this, which is that this amazing teacher named Rob Kaplan at business school who used to be vice chairman of Goldman Sachs. And he always said this quick quote, which was like, he said, always live beneath your means so that you can play with some abandon. It's so important. It's a great quote. And he quote. said, and he always says, play with some, not total, to your point about going all the way to the end, abandon. Because you have to take risks to be successful. You have to feel like you're ready to do that. And that's why, that's why young people are able to do such great things in the early days, because over time you sort of acquire this fear of taking risks because you have more at stake. And to sort of remember that there's nothing actually at stake, really ever, is helpful. And usually then you're, you clear the way for more expansive and confident approaches to risk-taking. So good. Okay, last question. What is your definition of success? So there's three words I keep saying to myself that come to mind. Resilient, spiritual freedom. That's what I'm working on. I kind of see that as like the journey of my life is to, you know, as life unfolds to kind of become better at practicing that. It's like not so much something you achieve, but resilient because, you know, you can achieve spiritual freedom by kind of disconnecting from life. But I don't think I want to disconnect from life. I think real real freedom comes when you can be plunged into life, into the river of life and still be free and still be spiritually open and at peace. And so that's kind of the, the thing I think about is how to practice resilient spiritual freedom every day. I'm going to do the opposite of what I just said, which is ask one more question. (laughs) So I'm curious, you know, something you said in your answer to two questions ago is kind of ringing in my mind. And like, I know as an investor, obviously your whole pursuit, your whole career is tied to outcomes. And those outcomes can seem very binary, you know, succeeding wildly, like a company being worth 50, 100x, 1000x what you invested in, you know, going to zero. And, you know, I've noticed as I've, you know, as just someone who's founded businesses, invested in businesses, businesses, whether you like it or not, you have to get up close and personal with high highs, you know, meaning like big successes and big and big failures. Do you have anything as you've kind of through the course of your career, you've had your own successes and failures? Are there anything you've learned from both of those? You know, something you've learned of like when you have massive success failures, what to take or what not to take away from that? And similarly, when you have failures, what to take away or what not to take away from that experience? 
I guess there's a couple of through lines if I were to analyze that for myself. Certainly, one just general thing that comes to mind is generally speaking, I think you learn more from success than from failure. In part, if nothing else, just because being successful feels good, so you tend to practice it more and it sort of compounds over time. I would go back to kind of what I said a couple of answers ago, which is that the through line of successes is, for me at least, has been calmness, relaxation to a large degree, not necessarily comfort, but just being calm and executing open-heartedly and open-mindedly, as opposed to, as a construct, as sort of as an alternative, you know, when you're faced with a challenge, kind of trying to grind your way through it, which is definitely a tendency I have is to just like, there's a problem, like, let me work harder. That's the answer. <laughs> yeah. And I, I really fall into that trap. And so the things I, when I look back that I think are successful are, are sure persistence. Persistence has been so, so, so crucial in everything, but persistence where I have tried to let go of, of fear and even of the grind to some degree and enjoyed the process with a calm mind, that's been the most valuable. And that's actually led the most to success because working from that place usually means that you are free in your expression, free of in your courageousness and free in your voice. And that's been really great. And then the other thing I've learned is like how important it is to respect and value your voice and respect and value the voices of others. And that's a dance that you do, but that's been also part of my journey is to become better at that whenever I can. Incredible answers. I mean, every single one of these I'm going to be listening back to again and, and taking down more notes. So thank you so much for your time, Rishi. Thank you so much for coming on, for doing this second kind of bonus part of the interview. This has been amazing. Thank you so much, Daniel. It's so great to have reconnected and have this chance to hang out together. So I super appreciate it. If you haven't already, listen to episode 37 to hear more from Rishi Garg of Mayfield. For links to everything we discussed, as well as our notes and takeaways from the episode, visit outlieracademy.com slash 37. At outlieracademy.com, you can also find more conversations with incredible guests like Scott Belsky, Kevin Kelly, Erlang Kagi, Paula Ferris, and Mark Sisson. You can also sign up for our free weekly newsletter, Outlier Debrief, where every week on Friday, we share a few highlights from the latest episode with a few of our favorite books, articles, headlines, and moments from that week. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you right here next week on Outlier Academy.